The following program is for informational and educational purposes only. This program does not replace medical, mental health, or psychological diagnosis and treatment prescribed by your personal physician, psychologist, therapist, or other health care provider. Please consult your provider for diagnosis and care before beginning or changing any program or idea discussed. Welcome to Prescription for Success with your host, Dr. Emil Haldi. Each week, we come through the myths and facts about health and wellness in order to bring you the best advice and the right information that you need to live an incredible life. Now, here is Dr. Emil Haldi. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Prescription for Success. This is your host, Emil Haldi. We have an amazing show prepared for you. With the growing worldwide epidemics of obesity, diabetes, diabetes, a new word, combination of obesity and diabetes, and many other serious chronic medical conditions, it has become obvious that current nutritional and lifestyle factors are the major cause. This show is about you. This is the only reason we're here. We're here because you're listening. And what's amazing, you're listening all over the world. So thank you to our listeners. Why should you care about this crazy worldwide epidemic? Well, let me mention some numbers from World Health Organization, WHO, only about diabetes and obesity. So listen to this. The number of people with diabetes has risen from 108 million in 1980 to 422 million in 2014. That's four times, nearly four times. Diabetes is a major cause of blindness, kidney failure, heart attacks, stroke, and lower limb amputations. WHO, World Health Organization, estimates that diabetes was the seventh leading cause of death in 2016. 39% of adults aged 18 years and over were overweight. Overall, about 13% of the world's adult population were obese in 2016. The worldwide prevalence of obesity nearly tripled from ni- between 1975 to 2016. Think about it, nearly tripled. You get the message. We're living in the era of illness, and we are all in it, and we need to do something together. Now, if you have to stop listening to this broadcast, and of course, we don't want you to do that, you can go back to voiceamerica.com at any time and listen to this or any of the previous episodes, and we definitely want you to do that. Just type in Dr. Emil Haldi or Prescription for Success. Also, give me a shout-out on social media. Tell me what you like about our radio program and the topics you want me to cover next. My guest today is a doctor who's taking big steps, huge steps, and making a dramatic impact in sharing lifestyle and nutrition message and changing lives for the better around the world. Dr. David Katz is a physician board certified in preventative medicine. Dr. Katz is the past president of the American College of Lifestyle Medicine. Thoroughly involved in research and public health, Dr. Katz created several programs with the goal of impacting lives of many people worldwide through food. He's the founder and president of the True Health Initiative, a nonprofit organization established to promote healthy, sustainable diet and lifestyle around the globe. He is known for his dietary recommendations. In 2016, Dr. Katz founded and became the CEO of his own startup company, Diet ID. Diet ID is a new digital dietary intake assessment tool. This innovative tool is used to help clinicians, hospitals, and wellness company, companies quickly and efficiently assess nutrition and their clients. Dr. Katz has authored numerous best-selling books and over 100 scientific papers. 
He has also written numerous newspaper and magazine articles. Welcome to the show, Dr. Katz. Thanks so much, Emil. Lovely introduction. Great to be with you. I am thrilled. It's an honor and a pleasure to have you here. Well, thank you. And, and you know, by the way, if I can jump right in, yeah. you know, all those statistics you gave about how prevalent diabetes is and what I often do when I'm speaking to an audience from the podium is I'll ask any given audience, and th- this could be almost anywhere around the world now, do you love somebody affected by diabetes? If so, raise your hand. Do you love somebody, not know somebody, but actually love somebody affected by heart disease? Raise your hand. Affected by cancer? Raise your hand. Affected by stroke? Raise your hand. Affected by dementia? You just go through the leading chronic diseases in modern societies. And by the time you're done with that very short list, pretty much every adult in pretty much every audience has raised his or her hand. And then you say, okay, so that's the current reality about our lifestyle choices and the impact it's having on our health. We have known for over a quarter century how to eliminate 80% of all of that, how to eliminate 80% of chronic disease. In the case of type 2 diabetes, how to eliminate 90% or more, how to eliminate 80% of premature death. So, you know, now think about that person you love, if your hand is in the air, and imagine a world where 8 out of 10 of us with our hands up Mm -hmm actually never had a reason to raise our hands because the answer is no. Those diseases haven't invaded our homes or our families. And it's important because in public health, we're often talking about statistics that people can't feel. But the reality is there is no public. There's just you and me and everybody else. And ultimately, we're talking about people and families and things that people can feel. And making that translation, I think, is critical to advancing our goals. So it's deeply personal, and people will do more for those they love than themselves a lot of times. No so question. I, I, I really like the question you ask the audience. Do you love someone who has diabetes? Because you will be more passionate about changing their lives than changing yours sometimes. The, well, changing their lives and also just recognizing this is not abstract, and th- this is not a public health thing I don't need to worry about. Oh, wait a minute. This is about me, my life, my family, people I love. And because these conditions are so prevalent and becoming more so all the time, it's rare to find a family that hasn't been invaded by one or more of these conditions. Yeah. So when you start to think, well, we could live in a world, we could give our children a world where eight times in 10, these conditions don't happen, suddenly the value proposition of that is perfectly clear. Wow, this is, this is not for someone else's benefit. This is about me and the people I care most about in the world. Yeah, absolutely. This is deeply personal. This is to our listeners. Yes, we're talking about high-level topics. We're talking about how to change the world and how to impact the world on a high level. But it's deeply personal. It's about your family. It's about you. It's about your mother, your sister, your father, your grandfather, whoever that is, your friend, your neighbor. We can change their lives if we empower them properly. And there are resources. There are things that we all know they're available, and Dr. Katz will talk about them. And we want you to listen carefully. And this show is to listen and to re-listen to because there will be so many golden nuggets shared here. So, Dr. Katz, you are, to the best of my knowledge, not practicing medicine anymore as far as being with patients hands-on, but rather you're doing so many things on a much bigger mission, inspiring millions of people worldwide. Well, thank you. Uh, So I did patient care for 25 years, uh, maybe a bit more counting my training years. And uh, it's true now I'm mostly only doing it on airplanes when they say, is there a doctor on the plane, which by the way, (laughs) happens surprisingly often. Um, I miss it, uh, but my career pulled me in other directions. And I really am trying to maximize my impact at scale 
uh, you know, I have a fantasy about my epitaph being the guy made a difference. And it's hard to make a difference in a, in a noisy, crowded, fractious world. So now I'm really devoted to initiatives in public health where it potentially can, can make a difference, especially related to diet and lifestyle patterns where there's such an enormous opportunity to add years to lives, add life to years. And by the same practices that can advance human health, we can also help save this beautiful planet of ours. Yeah, very, very powerful and so true. So you're doing a lot of work writing, speaking, uh, inventing new tools for practitioners and, and hospitals, which is very inspiring and very powerful. How did you get here? Tell us a little more about your journey from uh, medical school, anything professionally, personally you want to share with us? Thank you. Well, so two key elements, really. The first is a, a native inclination to see the big picture, the forest through the trees. And then the second is a, a tactic, uh, which I've characterized as strategic opportunism. So you know, in terms of the forest through the trees, I trained in internal medicine. You're in the hospital 100 plus hours a week. You're taking care of desperately sick people. And it's pretty intense learning how to do that. I mean, it's your job to try and not let people die on your watch. Yeah. Uh, it's intense. It's a great honor to have the, the, the privilege of that responsibility. Uh, so most people are so caught up in the details of that, that that's enough. But in my case, just because I have this tendency to see the big picture, I couldn't help but notice that, you know, roughly eight out of 10 people in those hospital beds never needed to wind up there in the first place. If they had made different lifestyle choices, if, if they had avoided avoidable things in their lives like bad food and lack of exercise and tobacco and on it goes. And so I really wanted to do more about preventing all that illness because, you know, simple fact is, Emil, no matter what we do in medicine, we're never very good at restoring full intact vitality once it's gone. I, I, I think of us like all the king's horses and all the king's men. Yes. Couldn't put Humpty Dumpty together again. So, you know, we can forestall death and we can treat chronic disease, but we can't uncrack an eggshell and we can't unscramble an egg. So, you know, once your health is seriously compromised, we patch it back up, but it's never the same. So a higher aspiration is to keep vitality intact in the first place. So the result was I went on from my training in internal medicine directly to training in preventive medicine with a focus on chronic disease epidemiology. And, and the reason was, you know, I, I wanted to do more to keep people healthy in the first place. And then that, that translated over time into many career activities, teaching, research, patient care, publishing, writing, speaking, you know, media activity. I worked on air for Good Morning America for over two years. I mean, every way there was to try and reach people. And then those decisions, those tactical decisions along the way, once I knew what I wanted to do, reach people at scale, leverage the power of lifestyle, if we could eat well, be active, avoid tobacco, other toxins, we could eliminate 80% of chronic disease and premature death. I wanted to be an agent of that. And it was not clear, and it still isn't clear, to be honest, you know, what is the single best way to advance that mission? And hence, strategic opportunism. Always be looking at the array of options in front of you. Always have a specific strategy in mind. I, you know, I, I have a mission I want to advance. And then you know, take advantage of those opportunities when they come along and they look like a way to advance the mission. So as I think about the different things I've done and, you know, and they range from being an accidental entrepreneur to, to being an inventor and securing patents to public speaking, to being a media 
figure uh, in various ways. Um, I couldn't have predicted many of them, but I did them when at the time it seemed like, yeah, this is a way to reach a new audience. This is a way to reach more people. This is a way to amplify the, the effort um, to empower people with the value proposition of lifestyle as medicine. And here I am. Yeah. So that sounds so interesting. So it's interesting. You, you decided to consider nutrition and lifestyle, the two factors that people have tremendous choice over. Exactly. And, and for a very specific reason. So I, I finished my training in internal medicine in 1991. I finished my training at Yale in preventive medicine in 1993. In 1993, just within a couple of months of my graduation, a paper came out in the Journal of the American Medical Association entitled Actual Causes of Death in the United States. Mm-hmm. Pretty provocative title. And you know, to make a long story short, what the authors were pointing out is the stuff that we put on death certificates, heart disease, cancer, stroke, diabetes, you know, the, the disease states that lead to death in the hospital aren't explanations and aren't causes, they are effects. So in this famous and important paper, Bill Fagey and Mike McGinnis enumerated the root causes of those chronic disease that are the proximal causes of premature death. And everything on their list of 10 factors was modifiable. And it explained almost all the premature deaths that occurred in the United States every year as of 1990. And the same is still true today. And it's true increasingly all around the world. And the first three things on their list all alone accounted for 80% of the premature deaths. And those three things were tobacco, poor diet, and lack of physical activity, or as I have uh, phrased them ever since, bad use of feet, forks, and fingers, (laughs) 80% of the premature deaths. So this was back in 1993 when the paper was published. And I thought, well, you know, if if we could eliminate 80% of premature death and chronic disease just by addressing this short list of things, you know, I, yes, I could have a career devoted to asking some set of erudite questions nobody's thought to ask and answering them. But what sense does it make to answer the new unasked question when the answers we already have could do so much to advance the human condition and we're not putting them to any good use? So I'm going to devote my career as much as possible to putting what we know to good use. And that's kind of how that unfolded. And then the focus shifted preferentially to nutrition for several reasons. First, in 1993, tobacco was the number one cause of premature death. Flash forward to 2019, diet is the number one cause of premature death in the U.S. and increasingly around the world. And second, of the variables that were addressed by this seminal paper, the most complicated one is diet, right? Tobacco is, I mean, it's hard to quit, but it's not complicated. You know, quitting is good. Smoking is bad. Physical activity, also pretty simple. You know, being active is good. Being inactive is bad. But diet, there's so many subtleties, so much nuance, so many ways to get it wrong. And thankfully, a number of ways to get it right. So that's where people are most confused because it's a complex variable. So I've devoted my career to sorting out that confusion and trying to empower people in that area preferentially. Yeah, this is so, so good. And and we spoke uh, before coming on, on the air here there are so many diets out there and so many people who are well uh, they're well studied they're professional people we have a lot of respect for them but there are so many opinions uh, you go vegan you go vegetarian you go uh, uh, towards meat you, ha- you you some people say no red meat some people say no chicken so but I'd love to have that discussion with you uh, as we go forward with this interview because for those of us listening for those of you listening this is going to be 
I would say eye-opening because uh, you're not tied to any diet. You're not tied to, you're tied to data and, and, and what the clinical scientific data shows to doctors. Exactly right. And, and the other thing, Emil, thank you. The, the other thing that I'm tied to is the common ground, the confluence of science and sense, the consensus of experts around the world. And we have a source of that. And I think it's critically important. So I actually care more about where I overlap with my colleagues all around the world than my own personal preferences. I mean, the, the problem, it's very easy for all of us to fall in love with our own opinions and fall in love with our personal preferences to mix those up with data and wind up telling people the single best thing to do, you know, is my version of what's true, but that's just my version, my preference. I would rather tell you about my agreement with colleagues around the world than my personal preference. So I was looking to advance that specific mission and I formed a nonprofit organization called the true health initiative. And So let's talk about that. This is a major project that you're doing, uh, very inspirational. Can you tell us a little more? Yeah, thank you. So so my my hypothesis was, and and just very quickly, you know, I I had been meeting with with experts in nutrition at conferences all around the world. Um, And one of the interesting things about expertise in nutrition is there's nothing theoretical about it. People actually eat. Uh, nutrition experts actually eat. So when you go to conferences with these people, you know, at some point it's dinner time or it's lunchtime and everybody has choices to make. And it, it, my observation was that, you know, whereas the public impression is that experts in paleo and vegan don't agree about anything, well, I had world-leading experts in both at conferences and they were choosing much the same food. So, you know, you're the world-leading expert on the vegan diet. It's dinner time or lunchtime on the buffet line. You fill your plate with all kinds of greens and veggies. And, you know, you leave room for beans or lentils as your protein source. And you sit down and enjoy your dinner. You're the world-leading expert on the paleo diet. You fill your plate with all the same greens. Mm-hmm. And where those lentils went, you've got bison or, you know, maybe grass-fed beef or wild salmon. But... Those two plates look more alike than different, and they look more like one another than either looks anything like the typical American's diet of glow-in-the-dark frankenfood. <laughs> so, so my theory was, if I ask these colleagues that seem to be so diverse, you know, will you stand up and be counted and represent the common ground, because we agree more than we disagree about what matters, um, that they'll say yes. And one by one, they started saying yes. And the next thing I knew, I had dozens and then hundreds. And so now, and people can go to truehealthinitiative.org and, and see this for themselves, our council of directors is a, is a literal who's who in, in the world of modern public health. Three former surgeons general of the United States, deans of schools, chairs of departments, CEOs of healthcare institutions, household names like Sanjay Gupta from the media world and on and on it goes. And they range from vegan to paleo, and they come from 45 countries, about 500 strong, all coming together to say, we agree. And we don't agree about every last detail. The, you know, the paleos make their argument, and the vegans make their argument. But we agree about 85 to 90%. And, and really, the idea of the True Health Initiative is, we A, we need a signal that's audible above the constant noise. And B, the common ground of our agreement matters more than the disagreement. So, you know, we could maybe debate 
is a diet better if it makes some room for wild salmon or bison than if it excludes those in favor of beans and lentils? We could bicker about that, but we can all agree the best diets are always made up of less processed foods, whole foods, mostly plant foods. You know, every t- There's a theme that we all adhere to, and then we choose our particular variant on the theme. And so, to the best of my knowledge, the True Health Initiative represents the single greatest source in the world of expert consensus about sustainable, healthy diets. And we don't advocate for just one particular kind of diet. Um, your show, Emil, is prescription for success, right? Yes. Yeah. And so, what, you know, what we try to do is not give one specific prescriptive diet, but actually to prescribe a theme. Uh, Michael Pollan said it pretty darn well, food, not too much, mostly plants, but wholesome right. foods, plant predominant in sensible assemblies. And then there are many variants on the theme that work. And, you know, frankly, you're the boss. It's your life. It's your diet. I think by empowering people with that truth and giving them a range of options, we can win more converts because you can love food that loves you back. You don't have to eat the diet that somebody tells you is right for you. You can choose the variant on the theme of healthy eating that you prefer, that's much more empowering. So no, I'm not wed to a particular diet. I am wed to data. And I, I, what I try to seek out all the time is where science, sense, and the global expert consensus across a wide range of points of view all converge. Yeah, this is amazing. So um, I often say on the show that people with more options have better lives. Yeah, and, uh, yeah, agreed. And- we're very similar in what we're doing. Uh, my goal for the show is to bring experts from around the world, people who have a, a tremendous following. They've developed a system. They've developed a message. They have a message that could improve lives. And I want to give this option to people, and people will decide what's working for them. Well, thank you for that. And, and so let's, let's encourage listeners to um, go to truehealthinitiative.org. We have a free monthly newsletter. You can join us and support us. You know, really, in unity, there is strength. So the more of us that say, hey, enough nonsense, enough people trying to prioritize their one prescriptive diet over all the rest, you know, support the True Health Initiative and help us amplify this common truth. Uh, because, you know, the... the, the the potential for the truth about food and diet to do good is incredible. Uh, there, there was an op-ed in the New York Times in August of this year, Emil. Mm-hmm. The title of the op-ed was, Our Food is Killing Too Many of Us. Pretty provocative title. It was written by Darish Mozaferian, who's the dean of the Friedman School of Nutrition at Tufts University, and Dan Glickman, who's a former secretary of agriculture in the U.S. And they cite the literature noting that diet is the single leading cause of premature death and chronic disease in the U.S. today. And then they go on to talk about solutions. And when we're talking again after our break, we can, we can start getting into those solutions. But just, you know, people need to realize what's at stake here. We're talking about the one variable that has the single most likelihood of killing you prematurely. And so getting it right is really important. It's important for you. It's important for your children. It's important for the people you love. And we have a massive amount of evidence about the fundamental truths of eating well. And we do still allow for that latitude so that you can choose a particular dietary approach that works for you and your family. These are critical elements that all too often get lost in the pop culture dialogue about diet. Yeah. What I love about the True Health Initiative is that it's, it's about common ground because that's 
unusual, quite, quite frankly, in the medical community. You, what you'll see and you'll agree on that there will be so many opinions that you can't agree on them. That's very common. Uh, whether it's uh, a vegan, uh, lectins, and all of these uh, opinions all, all over the world. So I commend you on finding common ground. And the names that you're mentioning uh, as far as folks uh, working for the True Health Initiative are supporting you, they are icons in the industry. Absolute icons. It's amazing. Yeah. And you're right. There is a lot of disagreement, but there's another problem, and that's the interaction of the health professionals with the media, which all too often profits from amplifying the disagreement because, you know, tune in tomorrow when we change the news yet again, right? I mean, the diet that's good for you this week, totally different from the diet that was good for you last week, and it'll yeah. be totally different again. That's not true. So there's, there is some legitimate disagreement, and then the public getting information actually amplifies and distorts the disagreement because it's in the interest of, of the, the news media. You know, the mantra of the media is afflict the comfortable, comfort the afflicted, rock people back and forth all the time so they never know what's true, so they have to tune in tomorrow. Yeah. Not your show, <laughs> but everything else. Uh, very, very powerful. So with, with True Health Initiative... How is it that you're able to get all these people from various sectors of uh, medicine or science or nutrition, and yet you have un- uh, a message that's somewhat united, right? And, and yeah. it's very clear about the, what people should be pursuing. Yeah, well, and, and actually, you know, you go to the True Health Initiative website and you can see the pledge that everybody signed up to support. I think because the pledge is incredibly evidence-based, eminently reasonable, and because my whole career has been really about building these bridges. You know, I've tried to avoid getting pigeonholed. Um, it's very easy as a nutrition researcher to study one particular kind of diet. And then because you study it and work with it all the time, you wind up thinking it's the best and everything you say implies it's the best. And then, you, it, you know, it, it's interesting. So you can have the world leading expert on the Mediterranean diet say the Mediterranean diet's best. You can have the world leading expert on a low fat plant-based diet tell you that's the best and and yet and so it sounds like they're disagreeing my diet's best no my diet's best but if you ask them hey could the two of you characterize the key elements of a health promoting diet they'd be 95 percent the same so if you i'm the third person coming in listening to both and saying it sounds like you're disagreeing the public's going to think you're disagreeing but i know enough to know you're mostly agreeing you're just answering the wrong question you know, if the question is which diet is best you say yours, she says hers. If the question is, what are the fundamental elements of a health-promoting, sustainable diet, you're both going to tell me mostly the same stuff. So we kind of, we changed the game. By change, we changed the answers by changing the question. I think the True Health Initiative started with a different approach to the questions, and we got answers that are incredibly empowering. Yes, very, very powerful. Uh, what, what's amazing is on our radio program, we had experts uh, who specialize in the vegan, plant-based nutrition. We have folks who actually even promote carnivore diets, so from all over the, uh, the spectrum. And uh, I want to give people options. What I really appreciate about your approach, once again, that you, you look at everything. And uh, we talked about before the show, imagine a physician who is specializing as a career message that certain diet is, is, is good for you. So hard for, them, hard for them to change their mind. Exactly. But, but we should talk about, because not, not every opinion is valid, so we should dive into that as soon as we can. Absolutely. Uh, what a powerful discussion. We'll come back after a few uh, messages. Mm-hmm. 
Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Haldi Pharmaceutical Compounding is one of the nation's top compounding pharmacies. We work with medical professionals as well as consumers, both human and veterinary. If you're a patient or a doctor and need to consult us, please call us for a free consultation. Additionally, you may purchase carefully selected quality brand supplements and vitamins at discounted prices at hcompound.com. To schedule a personalized consultation with Dr. Haldi or one of our associates, please email us at wellness at hcompound.com or call us at 646-650-5040. You can also check us out at hcompound.com. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are listening to Prescription for Success. If you'd like to reach the program today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to wellness at hcompound.com. Now back to Prescription for Success. Welcome back to Prescription for Success. This is your host, Emil Haldi. Today, I'm here with an amazing guest, Dr. David Katz, a physician, entrepreneur, a rainmaker in the world of nutrition and lifestyle medicine. So before the break, we had a fascinating discussion about True Health Initiative, how you're combining and finding the common ground between all these nutrition and lifestyle experts. We talked about your background from medical school to, uh, to the place you are today and, and the world of difference that you're making. And... Uh, Let's dive in into some of the projects that you're doing right now. I know in one of the projects you talked about modernizing protein quality. Would you please speak about that? Yeah, sure. And, and again, thanks for the kind words, Emil. Yeah, so, you know, when, when you say something is high quality, that's something you want, right? I mean, given a choice between high quality or low quality, all of us would choose high quality. So when we talk about high quality protein, I think the general response uh, among the public is, that's what I want. The problem is, when we talk about the quality of protein, we're using a very old definition of protein quality that is about and only about the concentration and distribution of nine essential amino acids. And that's really, really important if there's some likelihood that you're not going to get enough of a particular amino acid. Almost nobody in the United States outside of an intensive care unit and almost nobody in the modern world is subject to protein deficiency. It's just not a problem we have. And we don't tend to be deficient in any particular amino acid either. We get plenty. So, you know, once the, you know, and and by the way, this would not be true in the Horn of Africa, the Sudan, I mean, places subject to famine, it's a different story, right? But, but, you know, for most of the modern world that, that is wrestling with the, that has options for protein sources, the, the, the problem is not protein deficiency. The, the problem is we have too much of everything. So then, the, you know, the issue is, okay, so protein quality shouldn't be just about the protein in a food because we get plenty of that and we get all the amino acids we need. Protein quality should be about 
the food that's delivering me the protein so I can make the choices that are the best sources of protein. Because I don't, I don't eat protein most of the time. I eat food. And I get my protein from food. So if the best quality protein isn't in the best food, could you tell me what's the best food? So, so we reviewed all this literature. We reviewed the history. I worked with some you know, great colleagues, uh, Christopher Gardner at Stanford among them, um, Dr. David Jenkins, who invented the glycemic index, you know, really just a great group. And we argue that we need to modernize the definition of protein quality so it's not just about biochemistry the digestibility, adjusted distribution of essential amino acids. That's a biochemical definition. The definition of protein quality for the modern world should be, yeah, the concentration of protein matters. Yeah, the distribution of amino acids matters. But then what is the net effect of this food on my health? Well, gee, that matters an awful lot. And if we're going to queue up one more thing, what is the sustainability of this food source? What is the net effect of this food on the planet? Because if we're eating up food that we're not going to be able to produce for another generation, we're going to starve our children. We're eating our children's food, and I don't know any parent who wants to do that. Yeah. So we proposed a metric that weights each of those four contributions, amino acid distribution, total protein concentration, net effect of this food on health, and environmental impact of the food. And by that metric, you don't put beef and eggs at the top of your list. You put beans and lentils at the top of your list and, and down you go because beans and lentils, for example, are excellent protein sources. They also happen to be superb for health. They have a very low environmental footprint. So, you know, if you look across that fuller set of considerations, you reshuffle the list. And I think that's really important because then you tell people, eat the highest quality sources of protein and it would point them more towards beans and, and lentils and less toward beef and eggs, which come at a very high environmental cost and which are not associated with optimal health outcomes either. Uh, so we, we wrote that paper, published it in Advances in Nutrition. We generated an online petition uh, calling on the National Academy of Medicine to take this issue up. Uh, and we're continuing to work the project. We're hoping to send a delegation to Washington to meet with some of the key decision makers and, and bring our case directly to them. Uh, but that's the that's the idea that you know in a modern world that's not getting too little protein that's not amino acid deprived the right way to measure protein quality is the quality of the food. By the way, Emil, just to finish this discussion, mm -hmm. there are a lot of fallacies about protein. First, being you know that we need more and that more is better. No, yes. you eat more protein than you need. It's just extra calories. It turns into fat like everything else. That's one. Two. Protein, along with carbohydrate, triggers an insulin release. Most people think insulin is all about carbohydrate. Not true. Protein entering the bloodstream triggers an insulin release. If you eat protein together with carbohydrate, you trigger a greater insulin release than if you eat just plain carbohydrate. And then the other fallacy about protein is you have to eat meat or animal foods to get complete protein. All essential amino acids are in every plant food. That's where the animals get it. You eat meat and you're getting all the amino acids. Where did the animals get it? They got it from plants. So all amino acids are in all plant foods, all essential amino acids for human health. They're just at lower concentrations. But the evidence is very clear that if you have even a balanced vegan diet, no animal foods at all, you're still generally getting more total protein and more of each amino acid than you need in the course of a typical day. Yeah, that, that's actually a really good um 
distinction that you make. And most people believe that if you're not eating animal protein, you're protein deficient. Right. Um, and not, absolutely not true. Absolutely not true. That's, yeah. that's, that's just a flat out fallacy. Absolutely. We want to stress it to our listeners that uh, there's plenty of protein in virtually any plant food. Broccoli, for example, has more protein per calorie than red meat, I believe. So, well, it's, it's close because, you know, it's not that pr- pr- broccoli is a concentrated source of protein, but it has so few calories, the ratio, right, is, is, is probably more concentrated. Yes. Um, but again, you know, beans and lentils, excellent protein sources, a number of grains and seeds, excellent protein sources. Um, uh, quinoa is a great protein source. Amaranth, you know, some of these ancient grains are incredible protein sources. And if you eat a variety of plant foods, so nuts and seeds, whole grains, beans and lentils, a variety of vegetables over the course of the day, no trouble at all getting more than enough of each of the essential amino acids. Yeah. And what's amazing about these foods is that they also have a, a, a crazy amount of micronutrients, something that could help you with longevity and health long so that, And that's the key thing. So that's what we're arguing. So, you know, if, if you tell people the highest quality protein comes from a hamburger, um, they're going to think I should eat more hamburgers or eat more beef. If you tell people the highest quality source of protein is a food that is A, a good source of high quality protein, and B, really good for you because it's loaded with fiber, it's loaded with vitamins, it's loaded with minerals, it's loaded with antioxidants, it's, it's no contest. Now, you know, you're talking about beans and lentils and nuts and seeds and whole grains, and that's what we're saying, you know, that really the best food sources of protein are the highest quality protein sources. And the nomenclature is confusing people. So, again, we're, we're arguing it's time to fix the nomenclature. Yeah. So, I want to talk about different diets and movements out there because there are quite a few of them. Yes, there are. Before we go into that, tell us, Dr. Katz's perspective. What does good nutrition look like to you based on science, based on evidence? And uh, what should a person consider listening uh, to your story? So, you know, first, you know, maybe the audience uh, needs to be convinced that I'm a legitimate source. And so, you know, first, let me say I've done my homework. So I have written three editions of a leading nutrition textbook for health professionals, nutrition and clinical practice, where we've just started work on the fourth edition. Uh, The third edition came out in 2014, I believe, roughly 10,000 scientific citations across, uh, I think it's 750 pages. So, you know, massive amount of work and and the obligation there is to look at all the relevant evidence and with dispassion and without bias to interpret it. And and then I've done smaller scale versions of the same thing. I've written books for the general public, my most recent being The Truth About Food. I wrote a review article uh, also in 2014 for Annual Review of Public Health entitled, Can We Say What Diet is Best for Health? And I could keep going. So I've done my homework. I want to jump in and say that your work, in my opinion, I uh, very, very, uh, it's, it's iconic. What you're yeah. doing is is uh, is amazing. There are very, very few people around the world who are doing it, who are taking a stance and, and making a statement with evidence about changing the world, about bringing this level of uh, research and contribution to the world. So I want to say to our listeners that Dr. David's, David Katz's work is really, really unique. So keep listening because this is truly, uh, I'm actually eagerly waiting to hear what you're thinking. And I want you to hear uh, to my listeners very, uh, very clearly because this is unique. Please go ahead. Well, thank you. I, I hope I, after that, I hope my mother's <laughs> listening in. Thank you. Um, so, you know, I mean, I, again, gone the miles and, and done the work. And I've, I've always tried to avoid falling in love with any opinion I happen to like and, and really 
stay receptive to the evidence as it evolves. And, and, you know, the simple fact is if you look across all of the available evidence sources and you resist the temptation to, you know, pick a winner in a beauty contest, Michael Pollan did a really nice job in seven words, eat food, not too much, mostly plants. Now that's just, that's a little bit vague and we definitely need more detailed information. Uh, but the simple fact is when you look at mechanistic research, you look at intervention studies, including randomized control trials, and then you look at the experience in populations around the world, like the blue zones where people routinely live to be 100, the winning formula every time is diets made up mostly of minimally processed vegetables, fruits, whole grains, beans, lentils, nuts, and seeds, and plain water most of the time when thirsty. That is the beating heart. That is the backbone of a health-promoting dietary pattern. It also has the beautiful virtue of being kinder and gentler to our fellow creatures than the way most of us eat and much better for the planet. Now, here's the thing. Is that diet high in fat or low in fat? Yes. In other words, who cares? So, you know, you can have a Mediterranean version of a diet that's mostly made up of vegetables, fruits, uh, whole grains, beans, lentils, nuts, and seeds, and it would have a lot of extra virgin olive oil, and it would emphasize the nuts and seeds, and it would have avocado, and it might have some fish and seafood and a little bit of meat. And the end result would be, because of the, the generous amounts of extra virgin olive oil, it's high in total fat, but who cares? It's a beautiful, healthy, sustainable dietary pattern. just happens to be high in fat. As far as I'm concerned, that's a footnote. You could take the same diet, you know, minimize the nuts and seeds, minimize the avocado, not add the extra virgin olive oil, emphasize the vegetables, fruits, whole grains, beans, and lentils. And you could wind up with a very low-fat vegan diet, which has also been shown to have beautiful effects on health and also be kinder and gentler to the planet. So you now, you know, you have two diets that differ massively in terms of a macronutrient, but in terms of foods, they're mostly alike. And that's one of the key messages when you start to wrestle with what diet is best. Focus on foods. Forget about macronutrients. A diet can be high in fat and good for you or bad for you. A diet can be low in fat and good for you or bad for you. I mean, after all, a diet made up of nothing but Coca-Cola and cotton candy has no added fat. It doesn't mean it's a good idea, right? And the same is true of carbs. So everything from lentils to lollipops is carbohydrate. The idea that you can reach summary judgment about that vast expanse of the food supply makes no sense. So a diet can be relatively low in carbs or high in carbs and can be good or bad for you either way. If you focus on the foods, you really can't get it wrong. And so everywhere I've looked, and I've looked everywhere there is to look, the, the formula that marches across all the winning diets is an emphasis on minimal processing, not none, you know, because frankly, you know, putting food in a can, putting beans in a can is a form of processing. Freezing is a form of processing. Cooking is a form of processing. So not none, but minimally processed food. Avoid highly processed stuff for many reasons. Um, focus on whole foods as much as possible. Plant predominant. And then you have every option. You know, you can be plant predominant, add dairy and eggs, and you're lacto-ovo vegetarian. You could add fish, and you're pescatarian. You could add a bit of meat, chicken, and fish, and you're flexitarian. You could add a bit of all of that and emphasize infusions of extra virgin olive oil, and it's Mediterranean, right? I mean, and you, could, you could prioritize the protein sources and go low-carb. You could de-emphasize those and go low-fat. You know, again, all variants on a common theme. So when I wrote that paper, can we say what diet is best for health? 
My answer was it depends. If you mean a single winner in a beauty pageant, the one best diet, no, we cannot. We really, you know, we don't have a 50-year-long randomized trial comparing an optimal vegan diet to an optimal paleo diet to an optimal Mediterranean diet and so on and so forth to say which one is the winner. We can't. And I don't think you should hold your breath. We're not going to do that study anytime soon either. But if what we mean by best diet is the basic theme allowing for these many variants, then we absolutely can say what diet is best. And Emil, one, one final point, if I, if I may, because I've been working on this my whole career, but there is a shift in my emphasis. Mm-hmm. I think what's happening to the planet is the signature health issue of our time. That, that wasn't the case, or at least it wasn't clear to me when I started my efforts you know, back in the early 1990s. I really, I thought chronic disease was the big issue of our time, but you know, now it, it, it really is clear. It's what we're doing to the planet. It's, it's the depletion of aquifers, the change in the climate, you know, the melting of the ice caps, the decline in biodiversity. I mean, ultimately there are no healthy people on a ravaged ruined planet. And this planet is a gem. Now the single greatest treasure we all share is the biodiversity of this world. It's incredible to me how fascinated people are with the prospect of life on other planets while we squander the magnificent diversity of life we have on our own planet, it makes no sense. So we really do need to think now about sustainability and environmental footprint of diets. And I don't, I don't think we can talk about best diet for health in 2019 and not also mean for the health of the planet. So the health of people, health of the planet, it all has to be one thing now because we're not going to be healthy if the planet isn't. And what we eat has a massive impact on the planet and so one of the things we have to consider is what is the, you know, the footprint in terms of water use, land use, greenhouse gas emissions. And, and all of that argues even more powerfully than health effects for all of us shifting as far as we're willing to go in a direction of plant predominance because eating less processed food and eating more plants over animal foods are the best ways to reduce the environmental footprint of our diets. Yeah. So it's, it's amazing. You talk about common ground in, in your true health initiative. Our planet is our common ground here. Our literal common ground. Yeah. And by the way, one other thing to mention, I, I'd be remiss if I didn't shout out to my friends at Old Ways, uh, which is another nonprofit. So back in 2015, right around the time we were launching the True Health Initiative, Old Ways sponsored a conference in Boston. Um, I was privileged to co-chair it with Dr. Walter Willett, who was chair of the nutrition department at Harvard at the time, um, called Common Ground. And so folks can Google Old Ways Common Ground. And it, it was a, you know, a smaller scale version of what the True Health Initiative has become. We invited these dueling experts from all over the world. So, you know, experts in Mediterranean, experts in, in low-fat vegan, uh, defenders of dairy, and, and, and those who, you know, argue we shouldn't eat dairy. And, and over several days, we made all these presentations. And then in between our presentations to the audience, we wrestled with one another to define and map out the common ground. And, and so the proceedings of that whole conference are available online, the slides, uh, videos of all the talks, and the common ground statement, which is very compatible with the pledge that became the basis for the True Health Initiative. So that's kind of where we got our start. So shout out and thanks to my friends at, at Old Ways and to Dr. Willett and all the others who participated there. Excellent. How would folks get access to the, the information? I, I think that, you know, I don't remember the URL exactly, although um, uh, Old Ways has their dedicated website. But I, I think the easiest thing to do, just in whatever search box you're using, Google, um, type Old Ways. So one word, Old Ways, mm-hmm. Common Ground. You'll pull it right up. 
Excellent. All about common ground. Yeah, and and I agree. I think you make a great point, Emil. This planet is our literal common ground. We share it. You know, when you where do you live and where do I live? We live in the same place. We live on Earth, right? That's this right. is this is home. It's your home. It's my home. It's the home of everybody listening. We're not going to have another. There is no planet B, as the saying goes. And and so thinking about that in, in every decision we make, it's it's past time. And and that's that's the single largest way my own personal dietary practices have evolved. It's the single largest shift in my thinking. I can no longer be a good physician, a good public health practitioner, a, a good health professional, if I don't advocate frequently and fiercely for the health of the planet. I, these days, I routinely ask myself, what would Greta do? <laughs> so, I mean, it's, it's, it's part of the health equation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can't unbundle these things. You know, one of the things I really uh, want to say kudos to you for really promoting common ground and moderation. Uh, it's uh, m- my father always says, look, no extreme is good for health. If you push one way, what's completely vegan or you push another way, it's so you're fully carnivore. I love the common ground approach. It's all about greens, no processed foods, no sugar. We could all agree on that. And the rest kind of fits in, which is very, very powerful. It does. And, and yet, you know, people could worry, well, you know, you're not, you're not being prescriptive enough. Again, you're offering a prescription for success. And I think we have to be clear that we, do, we have to eat less meat than, than we do in the modern world. I mean, if you're not eating very much red meat already, maybe you don't need to eat less. But, but as a global society, we have to eat less. And, it, you know, it's not anybody's opinion. It's a fact. The Eat Lancet report, for example, looked at sustainable thresholds for our different dietary choices. Mm-hmm. And, you know, again, if, if you look at water use and you look at greenhouse gas emissions, you know, unless the, the modern world of 8 billion hungry homo sapiens cuts back on meat consumption, we can't stay within sustainable. We've we, we got a problem. We've got yeah, a problem. Yeah. So, you know, I would argue, look, you know, maybe there was a time when we could debate you know, plant predominant versus carnivore diets just on the nutritional merits. I still think the carnivores would have a hard time uh, winning that debate. But, you know, maybe there was a time we could have the debate. My point of view is the opportunity to even have the debate has come and gone because now the planetary issue is not debatable. And it's so much more important than you know, the effects of diet on the health of any one of us. We're talking about what happens to all of us. We're talking about whether or not our children have a viable world to live in. And so, frankly, the opportunity to have that debate has come and gone. Yeah, it's, it's, it's about our survival in many ways. That's what yeah. you're saying. Yeah. Uh, what do you think about intermittent fasting? You've published a, a paper on that recently. What are your thoughts? Well, publishing a paper is saying too much. I wrote a column uh, for Heated, which is, um, you know, it's one of the verticals of Medium. So Medium is, a, you know, kind of an online portal of yes. health information. Um, Heated is uh, curated by my friend Mark Bittman, uh, nutrition writer, expert cook. Um, so he's the editor-in-chief at Heated, and so I've done a number of pieces there. Um, Mark and I, by the way, did some uh, articles together for New York Magazine. It kind of went viral. Uh, and we've just done a book together. It comes out in March of 2020. It's called How to Eat. Uh, people, I think, will enjoy that. Congratulations. So, thank you. Thank you. I'm excited about that. So anyway, I did this column on intermittent fasting, looked at the literature, which I'd done before. It's a, it's a pretty easy answer to give. So the, the, the salesmanship attached to intermittent fasting implies that there are weight loss and health benefits separate from calorie restriction. 
And the simple fact is there's no there there. Um, if there's any net benefit of intermittent fasting relative to just exercising portion control every day, it's so tiny that it's a rounding error. I, you know, if you do studies, randomized trials where this group controls their portions every day and their calories, and this group achieves the same level of calorie reduction with intermittent fasting, the results are all the same. I mean, it, pretty much indistinguishable. So is it important anyway? It is. Why? Because people have a hard time controlling their portions every day. And this is a new tactic. So, you know, again, you're the boss. It's your life, your diet. If you find that it's easier to have, say, two days out of seven where you fast or semi-fast and then a little more latitude in your dietary choices the other five days rather than trying to be somewhat restrained every day, that just works better for you, it's fine. It's an option. It's an option. And, and again, you know, the this, this strategy is the same. I want to control how much I eat and I want to eat good stuff, but the tactics, the daily tactics that enable you and empower you to get there, can, they can be highly personalized. So I think it's a perfectly legitimate tactic. Here's the one thing that, that worries me most about intermittent fasting. I, I worry that people will think, okay, you know, there were a couple days out of the week I don't eat at all, so I can eat whatever I want on the other five days. And the simple fact is diet matters to health in ways that go far beyond just how much you eat. I mean, think about it. Diet is the fuel that runs every aspect of this incredible machine, the human body. Diet is the construction material for replacing every worn out cell and enzyme and cell membrane and hormone in your body. And, you know, j just as you would think about putting construction material uh, at, this, at a lot where you're going to build a house and, you know, you need the right balance of of bricks and wood and wires and insulation and siding. And if you have way too much of one thing and not nearly enough of another, you're not going to put up a, a sound house. We're the same. So what you eat when you eat remains critically important. The quality of your food and your diet remains critically important. So you may use intermittent fasting as a tactic to control quantity. It's not a substitute for also addressing quality. And I worry that people who use that tactic will think, I fast two days out of the week. I can eat whatever the heck. I, you know, I can eat cotton candy and drink Coca-Cola the other five days. Right. Not a good idea. No, what you eat when you eat still matters. So as long as you balance those two, intermittent fasting is the portion control tactic, still a focus on quality foods the rest of the time. I think that's absolutely fine. And by the way, I would note for me, I weigh about what I weighed when I graduated high school. I've never counted calories. I've never dieted. Um, I've always exercised. But I've always focused on eating high-quality foods. And one of the many virtues of high-quality foods, the kinds we were just talking about, minimally processed vegetables, fruits, whole grains, beans, lentils, nuts, and seeds mostly, and drinking water when thirsty, is they fill you up on many fewer calories than highly processed food. And there, there's new research, in particular a study on ultra-processed foods by Kevin Hall at the NIH, showing that the, the more food processing, the more it stimulates overeating, right? So... I think you can use intermittent fasting as a tactic. You can think about portion control. My advice is the single best tactic for controlling how much you eat is to focus on the quality of what you eat. And then, frankly, you'll fill up on the right number of calories and not even really need to fret about it. I love it. Quality of food. Dr. Katz, our show is uh, coming to an end. This was such a powerful discussion. Uh, I want to thank you for your time, but I also want to give you an opportunity to give a farewell message to our listeners. Well, I, I guess the last thing I'll mention, uh, Emil, first of all, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. 
I think diet, because it's so important to health and to the health of the plant, should be a vital sign. You know, it should be in everybody's electronic health record. It should be something we measure and manage as routinely as we do, say, blood pressure. And one of the things we didn't talk about is I founded this company, Diet ID, focused on that. So we have a whole new way of assessing diet quality that I think has the potential to put it in everybody's electronic health record. So check out dietid.com. Diet is that important. It ought to be measured routinely, managed routinely. And if we get it right, it can add years to our lives, add life to our years, and help save the planet. And that's why we've been having this conversation today. That's awesome. If you'd like to reach Dr. David Katz, you could go to his website, davidkatzmd.com, to learn more about his amazing work. Ladies and gentlemen, this makes it a show. If you want to live a happier, healthier, and a more fulfilled life, you need to be the CEO of your health. You need to be guided by an amazing practitioner, but it's your life. You lead it. Thank you for joining us. Until next time, be happy and healthy. Thank you for tuning in to Prescription for Success. Be sure to join your host, Dr. Emil Haldi, next Thursday at 6 p.m. Eastern and 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel for another edition of the program. Have a great and healthy week.